listening to Red Flag Radio. My name is Ros Ward. We're recording the show on Indigenous land that was stolen and never ceded. That always was and always will be Aboriginal land. We're in part two now of a two-part um, episode on economics and the legacy of the global financial crisis in 2008. And last time we sort of ended um, talking about the politics of the cri- of crisis and some of the implications of that. And today we're going to get right onto the current situation in 2020. And I guess one of the things that has struck me about some of the discussion around what's going on economically, certainly by the ruling class and by you know the leadership politically in Australia but internationally as well, is this kind of crazy idea that we can just snap back or snap out of the current situation. So I wondered if we could start with just saying, what do you think about some of these theories of recovery or, um, you know, being able to deal with this crisis by methods that have been tried in previous crises. Is any of that really possible? Yeah, it's interesting, the narratives in the mainstream. It's really two-faced at the moment. So there's one face, which is probably more public speaking for the ruling class, where they're saying, oh, this is just because of the lockdown. As soon as we're out of lockdown, we're going to be back to growth. But then there's the more serious ruling class voices like, you know, Financial Times, uh, the OECD, people like, like the, their actual economic advisors who are saying, we're going to have several years of high unemployment and very slow growth. No denying it, doesn't matter how long the lockdown lasts. Um, and again, this is an issue of the trigger versus the underlying situation. And th- the ruling class voices might not understand the underlying situation in the same way as Marxists do but they do understand that there's something going on that's not getting fixed, right? So mid-2019, well before any sign of COVID-19, mainstream commentators were talking about the signs of a coming recession. One key indicator was that new investments in manufacturing were slowing down in the big economy. And already several middle-rung economies were in recession in mid-2019. So people were speculating what would trigger a world recession in 2020? Maybe it would be a new escalation of the trade war. Maybe the failure of a bunch of corporate or sovereign debts. Maybe a stock market collapse. Because so for the last several years, share prices have been rising way out of kilter with anything real that the companies are doing, right? So real things like expanding their production capacity or conquering new markets or reducing their production costs are happening only minimally, but their share prices are just going up and up. So mainstream commentators expect that at some point that's a bubble that's going to pop, right? Um, but in the end, what triggered the, the recession is something completely unpredicted, obviously, and the effects are much more severe and sudden because it hit production immediately, right? Because of the lockdown. Um, So, but really at this point, the issue is once lockdown ends, which could be many months away, will things get back to normal? That's how lots of mainstream commentators are putting it. And what we should ask is what does normal mean at this point? 
it doesn't mean growth of the 1990s. It means stagnation, trade wars, zombie firms, all the stuff that was around a year ago, right? Which already prompted mainstream commentators to say, expect a recession. Mm. And um, then the question is, well, how, how does the economy survive in those circumstances of sort of dragging its half-dead carcass along? Who's, who has to do the work to make that happen? Well, again, you know, the system turns to ordinary people to tighten our belts, you know, lean in, um, don't be, no, what is it? Be lifters and leaners or whatever Joe Hockey Dickhead right. said to us a few years ago. And, you know, that we should be able to survive on lower wages. Don't expect an increase in your superannuation, which is the current kind of discussion in Australia in, uh, on our pension payments and so on. Like, we should be prepared to sacrifice for the greater good of the economy. Um, and that's basically the bottom line, yeah? Yeah, exactly. Um, so, and on top of that... Um, so to go back to the Keynesian stuff you were saying earlier, so there's two kinds of policies that economists are suggesting other than tighten your belt. So one is monetary policy and one is fiscal policy, right? So um, just kind of a brief summary of what these means. Monetary policy leaves investment decisions in the hands of private capitalists, but tries to make it more attractive for them to invest. Um, instead of just sitting on their pile of money, actually use it for investment. How do they, do they make it more attractive? They might lower interest rates. So capitalists get so little from putting their money in the bank that they may as well invest it instead to expand their business. Um, or there's quantitative easing, which in plain language is printing money and then giving it to bankers and investors. So the government buys bonds which banks and investors hold and the bonds are of dubious value at the moment because everything is dodgy um, and they replace the bonds with currency right which is of more certain value so the idea is when the banks and investors have just genuine money instead of bonds they'll feel more confident about the wealth they hold and so they'll be more confident in investing and really at the bottom of that kind of a view is a subjective theory of investment, which says that there's, you know, there's nothing objective about the capitalist economy that explains a depression. Because as far as the mainstream is concerned, the capitalist economy just works like clockwork. It's always growing, always demand equal supply. So the only thing that can cause a depression is, is subjective factors, like investors feel underconfident. So you just shore up their confidence, right? Um, well, how is that playing out? At the moment, interest rates are close to zero in many major economies. So they can't go any lower. You can't make it more attractive for capitalists. And quantitative easing hasn't led to enough new investments to begin an economic boom, right? We're still in a stagnant economy. And huge amounts of money, which has been given to banks and investors, most of it, well, a lot of it is being hoarded in vaults. A lot of it has entered speculation in rising share prices or real estate prices, um, which eventually are going to pop, as I said earlier. Um, so again, to go back to what 
Marxists might say about this, why has monetary policy failed to end the stagnation and create a new boom? Well, the problem is when the expected profit rates on new investments isn't very high, for instance, because there's overcapacity in a bunch of industries, or when the prospects for profit in one part of the world or a different part of the world are uncertain because investors are holding their breath to see which economic powerhouse will come out of the tussle as the new world center of manufacturing. So long as there's that kind of uncertainty, it doesn't matter how low interest rates are. It doesn't matter how confident millionaires feel about the wealth they hold. They will not expand their factories. Okay, so the other option is fiscal policy, which is when the government, in, the government itself invests instead of leaving the decision to private investors. Um, and where does the government get the money to invest? One, it can borrow from private rich people. Or if you're a big, stable economy like the US, you can print your own money and invest with it within limits. And the rationale for this comes from Keynes, right? So uh, the idea is demand runs the economy. If there isn't enough demand, there will be uh, private investors will not expand supply. They're not going to make new factories. And if there is enough demand, then private investors will expand supply because the market makes demand and supply equal, right? Um, and the idea is the government just has to invest a little bit to kick things off, and then the private sector will take over and will be out of the depression. Um, and just to clarify, by mid-2019, mainstream economic bodies like the OECD were recommending more fiscal policy. They were saying economies should be building infrastructure because there's a recession coming up and monetary policy hasn't been enough. We need fiscal policy. But beyond mainstream economic bodies, Keynesian stuff is particularly big on the left end of mainstream politics, um, where there's an additional clause, which is that whatever the government invests in should be progressive things. So it should be renewable energy generation, public housing, hospitals. And the way they present this, the, the left end of the mainstream spectrum, is as if it's a win-win. It gives the impression that, you know, those short-sighted neoliberal policymakers, they only see competitive one-upmanship. But we far-sighted Keynesian liberals can see how to benefit all parties, both capital and labor, both one national ruling class and its foreign rivals. We don't need class war, we need class compromise, so long as we have the, the smart intellectuals making the economic policy. Um, so in that sort of worldview, the growing inter-imperial rivalry between US, China, Saudi Arabia, Iran, all sorts of countries, isn't the fault of the capitalist system, it's just the fault of war-hungry right-wingers. So put us, peaceable Keynesian liberals, in, and you'll get peace and growth. And? <laughs> uh, well, so, I mean, uh, they think that the, the, that the stagnation can be ended this way. So Marxists mm -hmm. tend to think that's too simple. Let's take it in steps. So one is the win-win scenario is a myth. So 
So advocates of it point to the social democratic period from the 1945 to the 1970s in the West. So in that period, Keynesian economics dominated economic circles and policy circles. And at that time, economies did grow rapidly and the welfare state expanded and wages rose. So they say, isn't this proof? Keynesian policies can work. Well, no, it isn't proof because correlation is not the same as causation. Keynesian policy did not cause those things. The growth happened for independent economic reasons beyond the control of any policymakers, Keynesian or otherwise. And actually, even though Keynesian theory dominated economics, Keynesian policies did not have to be tried out during a boom, right? Because Keynesian policies mean when there's a recession, you do some fiscal spending. Well, there wasn't a recession. There was a boom. So uh, by the time you got to a recession, which mm. was the 1970s, and Keynesian policies were tried out, they failed. Uh, so it's a bit disingenuous of Keynesians to claim credit for the boom. Um, and then there's the expansion of the welfare state, the rising incomes. Well, that was really the product of a strong, of the strong position of organized labor coming out of the 1930s and 1940s in several Western countries. So the origins of that lie in class struggle, not in class compromise. Um, and again, it's a bit disingenuous for Keynesians to claim that it was somehow their arguments which convinced capitalists to be nicer to workers or, you know, convince them that it's really in their long-term interest to give us a, mm -hmm. a welfare state or something. Um, okay, so, but put aside the win-win argument. What about fiscal yeah. policy implemented by conservatives, right? Uh, with no pretense of helping workers or the environment. Can that end the depression? Well, Marxists argue that Keynesians are wrong to say that demand drives growth. In fact, it's profitability that drives growth. And in depression times, when the world economy isn't growing very fast, there's no way to decisively raise profitability for the capitals of one nation state without doing it at the expense of capitals in another nation state. So, the, for instance, the overcapacity in key industries has to be resolved. The fight over sources of raw materials or export destinations has to be resolved between the US, China, the EU, and the losers in that battle will see a bunch of their corporations go bankrupt because they can't produce as cheaply or sell as much as the winners. Um, and we've, I mean, we've had plenty of fiscal policy already since 2008. China's huge domestic stimulus, for instance, and then the Belt and Road spending, um, or the ramp up of military spending by both by China and then US and its allies like Australia. Um, that's a kind of fiscal spending as well. Now, these policies created demand, but they haven't ended the stagnation. Really, if any kind of state spending has a shot at ending the depression, it'll be not because it raises demand, but because it's a successful competitive policy, right? And so that kind of brings us back to competition, which is at the heart of it. What does it mean to say a competitive, uh, a successful competitive policy? This is a very high stakes game at this point, right? One ruling class wins because another loses. One, uh, the capitalists of one nation state win because their workers lose. That's the only way things are playing out. 
when ruling classes settle their spheres of influence or their economic position for the whole coming generation, it's very tempting for them to use militaries, which they've invested billions of dollars in. They're not just going to give up their territory when they have these militaries sitting there. And similarly, within the nation, this kind of competition inevitably toys with authoritarianism because you have to make workers accept lower living standards. Uh, and you have to corral increasingly restive masses who are disillusioned with mainstream parties into supporting far-right scapegoating of some internal enemy, which is allegedly weakening the national, the weakening the national spirit, right? Um, so there's no middle ground of welfare state liberalism here, which is what proponents of Keynesian fiscal policy are really getting at. They're saying, give... Mm -hmm. Welfare, welfare state liberalism another chance but there isn't any room for that anymore either the ruling class wins or the working class wins and thankfully more and more exploited and the uh, exploited and oppressed people around the world who've been pushed into a corner by ruling classes are standing up and fighting back um then mm. you know obviously it's not an it's an uneven process not all workers will join a protest or a picket and even those who do will disagree on strategy or their vision for a better world. But for the first time in half a century, masses of people have entered the stage of history. And these are the conditions in which Marx and Engels thought that arguments about working class revolution can at least get a hearing. Yep. And um, you can hear those arguments in other episodes of this podcast, in fact. Because I think you can listen to all of that. I think that is quite bleak in terms of the economic outlook. Um, because basically every ruling class strategy ends up coming back to the same thing, which is you have to um, smash the working class of your own state or, or smash the working class of some other nation. And that's basically your options for recovery. Um, so, yeah, that, that I think that is true that it just comes back to, well, either the ruling class wins or we do. And that's why you have to kind of be organised. And the fact that even just during this months of the pandemic, that all of these billionaires have become so much richer, that you've got Jeff Bezos, who's now worth $200 billion as an individual, um, means that you can see who's winning at the moment. Yeah, it's absolutely insane. So that's why we um, continue to talk about Marxist ideas and not just talk about them, but try to put them into action and uh, try to really get our heads around economics. So thank you so much for being back with us um, on this episode, Sagar. Thanks, Rod we'll and Liam. Hopefully have you again. I reckon we could do a whole one on Keynesianism, to be honest, because there's a lot in there I think that we could even go deeper into. Um, so you never know. You be our resident economics uh discussant that would be excellent I would um, love to put the book so, more into Keynesianism <laughs> I can tell yeah alright well thanks so much and Liam thanks again for all of your tireless work on the dials at the other end um, and thank you for listening to Red Flag Radio for supporting us on Patreon and for sharing uh, episodes that you like and maybe even don't like just to start these discussions uh, as far and wide as possible we have a world to win. <laughs>